Well, perception is everything, or so the saying goes. And every time I hear that saying, I can't help but think about uh, the world's best dog, Thor. You've probably heard me talk about him before, but he was like a 115-pound-ish chocolate lab with a major perception problem. He thought he was the tippy-top of the food chain, and so much so that it's actually one of my family's favorite pastimes to watch Animal Planet with Thor. No one in my family really loves animals per se, but it is really fun to watch Thor watch Animal Planet because he would see a lion come on the screen or a bison or whatever it was, and he would just go crazy that this animal had the audacity to be in his living room. Uh, we even had a horse that lived on our street, and he would just lose it every time he saw the horse. I guess he thought he could take him. And I always wondered, what, what did he think was going to happen? You know, if he could catch up to the bison, what was his plan? I don't know. I guess perception's everything, right? He thought he could hack it. Well, one day, we had a bunch of people over for dinner like we normally did, and living up in the mountains, you kind of get used to hearing things like coyotes barking. And so we're all eating and talking, and then we hear the coyotes barking. And if you know anything about coyotes, what they do when they hunt prey is that they will kind of come in a circle around them and nip at the animal's ankles to bring them down. And then they're easier victims, I guess you can say. And it's a terrible thing. You hear the coyotes kind of yipping, and then you hear the prey crying. It's awful. No one in my family liked coyotes. We all hated these guys. And sure enough, we start hearing the coyotes, and then we notice how quiet it is in my house. Because Thor, who loved to bark at every animal that dare cross his path, was remarkably quiet. So, of course, we run out to the deck, and we look down below, and sure enough, there's my big, dumb dog in a circle of about 10 coyotes around him, taking them all on. So I panic. I look back at my dad and, you know, scream, like, he's down there, go get him. But my dad was already halfway down the hill, which is impressive because I lived on the on the edge of a really steep hill. And my dad was full steam just running. These guys had the nerve to pick on his dog. And let's just say a couple of coyotes got a swift kick. There was yelping, and they all took off running. Uh, it reminds me of like the Lion King, you know, when they all like scurry away when the lion comes in. Well, my dad saved Thor, picked him up, not exactly as cute as a shepherd with a sheep. He's holding my giant dog, and then has to come back up that super steep hill and carry him back into the house. And so when he gets in the living room and he sets Thor down, we all kind of run to him to make sure he's okay. And I wanted him to lay down. You know, he's bleeding everywhere. And Thor was hilarious. Chest out, full confidence, walking around the room to everyone in the house. It was almost like you could hear my dog saying, see that? I just took on 10 coyotes. Uh, it was absolutely absurd. And I remember looking back at my dad he was leaning against the wall in the kitchen, and he's breathing heavy because he just carried this big, dumb dog up a hill. He's covered in dirt and dog hair, and he's grinning from ear to ear because he had quite literally just kicked the coyote's butts and saved my dog. <laughs> well, regardless of however Thor perceived that whole situation, the real hero of the story was my dad. And you know, as we think about our spiritual life, our heavenly father, I think sometimes when we read passages like Psalm 23 or other passages in scripture that are so encouraging and tell us about all the amazing benefits that are ours because we belong to God. He's our good shepherd. He's rescued us. He loves us. It can be really easy to think about all the benefits, all the things that are good for us, and we forget the one who gave them to us. 
It can be so easy to miss the shepherd because we're focused on what we get instead of getting him. Well, our passage today is going to help us in a very real way get our eyes off of ourselves and onto our good shepherd. We've had the privilege this summer of studying Psalm 23, and since it's our last time together, I would love for us to read the whole psalm together, and we're going to focus tonight on the last two verses, verses 5 and 6. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 23, and let's read together. Psalm 23. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We've learned so much about our shepherd in these verses, and we see how David starts this psalm talking in first person about his shepherd. It's almost like he's bragging, I belong to him, look at him, he's the good shepherd, he does all this for me. And then we see later on in verse 4 that David switches to second person, and he starts talking directly to the shepherd. It's like he's affirming, because of what I know is true about you, God, I can trust you and I'm going to follow you, even when it feels scary, even when I feel like I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And now, in these last two verses, we see a shift happen one more time as David is still in second person talking to the shepherd, but this time... He starts talking to God, not as just a shepherd, but as the host of a banquet. It's interesting because we're going to see that our good shepherd is also a great king. And verse 5 is going to explain both the shepherd and the kingly host aspect of our God. Look at verse 5 with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies to prepare a table. That's an interesting phrase. And actually, for shepherds, this is a pretty common phrase. Shepherds are known to prepare the tablelands for their sheep. The tablelands were the, um, the broad, grassy areas, kind of en route as they were climbing up the hills. They would find places of rest along the way to have their sheep lay down. The tableland is something that the shepherd would have to go before them and prepare. It's interesting, actually, that the word mesa in Spanish, it's translated table. So you can almost picture this scene, can't you? The shepherd has his sheep behind him, and he leaves them for a minute, and he goes on ahead up the trail to the area where he's going to take them to rest. And he spends all day laboring, sweating, picking up the rocks and throwing them out of the way so the sheep won't twist their ankles. He grabs the poisonous rooted plants and yanks them up so his sheep won't be tempted to eat them. He scares off the predators. He finds where their dens are. He knows exactly where the safe places are for his sheep to lay down. So by the time he goes back to get his sheep, 
He's tired, he's sweaty, he's done a lot of work, and then he leads them right back up the same path he was just on and shows them exactly where they can rest and lay down and be safe. He's gone before them. And it's a great picture because really, our good shepherd, Jesus, has done the exact same thing for us. Jesus has gone before us. He's intimately acquainted with every uphill battle, every struggle, every hard thing that we will go through. And really, he's gone before us and done all the prep work so that we can follow him. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, and also Hebrews 4, 15, explain that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but he has gone before us. He quite literally knows exactly what it is we're going to face, and he's made a path for us to follow. And that's so encouraging, isn't it? Your good shepherd knows you. He can comfort you because he's been there. He's deeply acquainted with what you face. That's incredible. But have you ever asked yourself, why? Why did he go to all that work? What was his plan? Well, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, tell us exactly what the good shepherd had in mind all along. Isaiah 53, 4 and 6 says that he was crushed for our iniquities. He took on our punishment, not just laboring, but living and dying for our sake. All while we, like obstinate sheep, We're running off the path and going every direction. We can never forget that the benefits that we have from our good shepherd come to us because he laid his life down for us. We cannot forget that our shepherd was crushed for us, which is even more remarkable given his status, not just as the good shepherd, but as king. Look at verse 5 again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What I love about that word table is that it literally means table, (laughs) like a, a piece of wood, furniture, table, the kind that you sit and eat at. But this table was a big table. It was supposed to be known specifically, not like the little end table in your house, but a banqueting table. One commentator said you can accurately translate it the king's table. And it's so interesting because our shepherd has gone before us, he's made the way for us to follow him, and ultimately, he's going to welcome us to join him for a banquet seated at the king's table. That's incredible. Hebrews 9.28 says that Jesus came once to deal with sin, and he is coming again, not to deal with sin again, but to rule and to reign and to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is going to be a day where seated at the king's table when all is made right. But that day has not happened. It's not yet. We are still in the time of preparation. How do we know that? Well, verse 5 tells us at the very end. He's preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. We still face sin. We still face enemies of our shepherd. This word enemies is talking about personal hostility or criticism. And it's interesting because if you follow the shepherd, if you love the shepherd, you're going to have to align yourself with him and he has some enemies that are going to become your own. Did you know that your shepherd has enemies? 1 Peter 5.8 says that his enemies are going to hunt you down. He has an adversary, the devil. He's looking for someone to gobble up like a little sheep that strays off the path. If you follow the shepherd, you're going to have enemies. You're going to face opposition. You may not feel exactly like you're home because you're not. 
And that's the whole point. You aren't home here. You might face opposition. People may not like your shepherd, but it's okay. You've got the shepherd. He's yours. You are safe with him, and that is what you can boast in. You've got everything if you've got him. The best satisfaction, that cup running over, I've got everything I need feeling that we often look for when we read Psalms 23 doesn't come from the green grass or the still waters or the benefits that the shepherd gives you. It comes from him. You have him. And the best kind of peace, the best kind of satisfaction you will ever know is knowing for certain that you belong to the good shepherd. Ladies, if we want real satisfaction, we need to find it in seeking solidarity with the shepherd. Let's write it that way for our first point. Seek satisfaction through solidarity with your shepherd. Solidarity defined is not just a feeling, but it's actually behavior. It is being willing to stand in solidarity, to act in support of another. That's the attitude that sheep have to have about their shepherd, to stand in solidarity with him. Because for those of us who follow the shepherd, we know that he has enemies and those enemies will be ours as well. Your solidarity with the shepherd may cost you. It may be uncomfortable. It might be difficult. You may even have enemies, but it's okay. You get him. Jesus even told us in John 15 to expect this. He said that a servant is not above his master. If they hated him, they're going to hate anyone who follows him. If they persecuted him, they're going to persecute anyone who follows him. And once again, you can rest knowing that even if you face persecution, you have got the shepherd. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the good man has his enemies. He would not be like his Lord if he had not. If we were without enemies, we might fear that we were not the friends of God, for the friendship of the world is enmity with God. For some, the temptation is just to not align with the shepherd. For some, it is just to stay quiet. But we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to align ourselves with him even if it means we get a little dishonor from people who think we're crazy? Does it bother you to see the culture consistently and more aggressively push against your shepherd? Or are you okay with it as long as you don't have to feel any of the sting? Ladies, we cannot stay silent. We have to have some solidarity with our good shepherd. People have to know we belong to him because we love him. When I was in high school, uh, my family moved my senior year. And so we started a new school about halfway through my senior year. And my brother was a freshman. As you can tell, I'm not a super uh, short person. Uh, I'm pretty tall, and my brother is six foot two now. But then he was about five foot as a freshman, five one ish. And he was just easy prey for the football team that loved to sit right next to where he had lunch every day. So I found myself uh, facing a crossroads, if you will. Uh, I needed to make new friends too. This was a new school, and so I had a choice. I could sit with my brother and destroy my social life. I, you know, if I didn't sit with him, I could find a million reasons that I, it would actually make sense. You know, I needed to have friends too. I could do homework. Those were all good, valid reasons. But deep down, I knew what I needed to do. And so I sat with him every day at lunch, and together we were the derision of the football team. And you know what? It was the best decision I ever made. Solidarity with my brother strengthened our relationship in a way that very few things ever have. And you know what? It has to be the same way with our good shepherd. 
There are a lot of people that read Psalm 23 and they love the comfort that it affords. They love reading about the benefits of the shepherd, the green grass, the still waters. And when it comes right down to it, when it comes to facing some opposition or some discomfort for standing with the shepherd, they don't always want to do that. Ladies, it is so worth it. It is a small price to pay to face a little opposition to get the shepherd. You got to be aware that your shepherd has enemies, but being aware of the enemies is very, very different from fearing them. We cannot fear them. We can't be afraid of what people will think or say or all the things they'll try to throw at us if we follow the shepherd. We can't go there. We can't worry because we have to keep our eyes on him. Look at your shepherd. Look at the lengths that he has gone to save you, the sweat, the blood, the labor for your sake. Let that outweigh what any enemy could ever say. Whatever you go through, whatever hill you climb, whatever it is you face, remember that your shepherd has gone before you. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How true. And yet, that's exactly what he did. He shed his blood to save us. So we can't swing from one extreme to the other. We can't fear the enemies, and we can't befriend them. We just got to keep our eyes on the shepherd. One day, you are going to sit at the king's table, and not just to feast, but to be an honored guest. And I promise you, on that day, you will not care what the enemy said about you or your shepherd. You've got to keep that day in mind. Look at verse 5 again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In ancient times, it was actually customary if you had an honored guest coming in your house to anoint their head with oil. I'm not exactly sure how it was done, but it's actually interesting that Jesus references this himself in Luke 7, 46. Do you remember when Mary was anointing him with this costly perfume and oil, and there were people that were indignant about how the money could have been used for other things? And Jesus' words were very interesting. He said, when I came in, looking at the host who was welcoming him, you didn't anoint me with oil. She did. She was giving him honor that his host had denied him. It was very customary in those times to anoint an honored guest with oil. And more than that, if you were an honored guest in that time to show hospitality, the host at dinner would keep your glass full. And not just full, but they would fill it all the way to the top and just kind of let it overflow just a little bit all over the table. I guarantee none of us are hoping that happens at dinner tonight. But back then, if that was the case, you would be seen as an honored guest. It was meant to say, as long as you are in my house, you will have everything you need in abundance running over. That was the picture. And what I love about David is that is exactly what he's doing here with his words. He's painting a picture for us. You can almost see it in his mind. Your shepherd is setting the table. And you can look over your shoulder and see enemies watching this all around. And it can feel a little uncomfortable. But there will be a day when the Lord will welcome you as an honored guest to sit at his table. That's incredible. You can see David painting the contrast here. His enemies rejected him, but his shepherd welcomed him. The world is going to hate you, but the king welcomes you. Wow, 
What a contrast. And like Paul says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Does that mean you'll never have anybody against you? Of course not. But man, oh man, when you put them side by side, there's no comparison, isn't there? If you are welcomed by the king, who cares what your enemies say? David knew that as long as he had the shepherd, he had everything he needed in abundance. And what I love about David is that this also had a very real shepherding component as well, because David was a man very familiar with rubbing heads with oil, uh, his sheep heads. <laughs> sheep have parasites, which I knew, but I didn't really know that shepherds had to rub down the sheep's whole head with oil in order to help them fight against the parasites. Because sheep, if they have a problem with the parasite in their nose or their eyes or whatever, they act erratically and insane, and they will actually like, end up killing themselves going to crazy lengths to find relief from the, from the parasites. They'll run into bushes, they'll run, run off cliffs. One shepherd I uh, was reading was saying that his sheep had a habit of coming up next to him and putting their heads on his leg over and over whenever they had parasites. And it's so hard to say it without saying no pun intended, but help, something's bugging me. Eh? That's kind of the picture of what we should do as sheep following the good shepherd. When something is bugging you, be it your enemies or your circumstances or whatever, go to the shepherd over and over and over again. Go to the shepherd, go to the shepherd. And he's not going to rub oil all over your head. He's going to do something so much better. He's going to anoint you with his Holy Spirit, like he says in 1 John 2.20. And it's the Holy Spirit who's going to help you understand his words and live them out and obey them. The Holy Spirit is going to help you follow the good shepherd. And that sounds nice and easy, doesn't it? But again, what about the enemies? What about the enemies? It's hard. Well, that's why you need the Holy Spirit more than ever, to help your mind think rightly. I love Psalm 37. If you have time this week, read Psalm 37. It's a great parallel to Psalm 23. And I love the way that David talks about enemies in Psalm 37. He says, you know what your enemies are like? They're like grass. And the grass grows, and you're looking at it now, but guess what? It's going to wither and go away. That's what your enemies are like. You know what lasts forever? Your shepherd. You know what you should do? Well, Psalm 37.3 says, trust in the Lord. Do what is good. And this next part, so good, it can be translated, feed on his faithfulness and find safe pasture. If you're a sheep and you're looking for those green grasses and that still water, where do you find that? What even is that for a Christian? It's his faithfulness. His faithfulness is what you constantly ingest. That's where you find your satisfaction and your strength. It's his faithfulness. Feed on his faithfulness and do what is good. Christians should be the most content and the most confident people in the world. Why? Because they've got the shepherd. Does that mean that everything is going to be easy? Of course not. But in comparison to getting him, man, we've got everything we need. David said in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Psalm 23 has become a favorite for Christians and even people who aren't Christians because we love to see all the good things that the shepherd gives us. And it's true. He does give us so many good things. There's nothing better than to follow the shepherd. That's true. 
but we have to remember why we get these blessings. And if you're a real follower of Christ, you need to know why it is your cup overflows. It's easy to think that God should just give us what we think we need, those green grasses, those still waters, but really, we can't forget. Your cup overflows because he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath on your account. He took the full cup of God's punishment so that your cup would overflow with goodness and mercy. And that should be a spiritual reality that affects you every day of your life. No matter what you are facing, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, whether you are climbing up the steep hill or feeling a little shaky, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, or laying down in the grass and enjoying the sun, regardless of where you find yourself, you can rest in knowing that your shepherd has got you. You are under his care. You can be confident in him because of his character, because of who he is. Look how David describes his shepherd in verse 6. He goes on saying, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David considered every day of his life here on earth, stretching all the way out into eternity forever, to be marked by God's goodness and mercy, a connection that was never going to end. That sounds like a man very committed to following his shepherd, and honestly, it should remind us of the way that we follow our shepherd. Let's write it this way for our second point. Like David, we should respond to the shepherd's love by following him closely. Respond to the shepherd's love by following him closely. Have you ever had someone follow you closely? If you're a mom, the answer is undoubtedly yes. How many times have your kids run your heels over with the shopping cart or given you a flat tire and you've said, not that close, not that close? That is how we think of the word follow, but that is not exactly the word that David had in mind. If you know anything about David's story, he was a man who was very familiar with being followed. Uh, we see in his life a whole series of people following him. He was anointed as king when he was a kid, but didn't take the throne until later because the reigning king at the time, King Saul, was trying to kill him, chasing him down. So David spent a lot of time hiding in caves and running for his life. Eventually, after Saul's death, he did become the king. And it wasn't all peace even then, he faced all kinds of battles with different kingdoms and going to war. But probably the hardest thing that David ever went through was when his own son, Absalom, decided to try to lead a coup and take the kingdom from his dad. So once again, at the closing years, of which I'm sure he wished were his retirement years as king, he found himself on the run again, this time from his own son. And it's interesting because most commentators say that this is probably when Psalm 23 was written. Brokenhearted and exhausted, David's writing the words to this song, and his words were very well chosen, and they were specific, and they were powerful. The word follow here doesn't just mean follow. It literally means to chase down, to hotly pursue in order to overtake. Again, here's David painting another clear picture for us. My enemies are chasing me down. They're hotly pursuing. They're trying to overtake me. They want my life. And he found comfort and strength knowing the opposite was true of his shepherd. My shepherd is chasing me down with his goodness and his mercy, and I can't outrun it. 
What a contrast. That's where David found his comfort, knowing the character of God. And the first word that he uses to describe his God, his shepherd's character, is goodness. Goodness is his righteousness. God always does what is right and what is good. And this kind of points back to verse 3 in Psalm 23 when he says that the good shepherd leads me in paths of righteousness. He always shows me the right way, the best way. That's because God always does what is right and what is good. That's a trademark quality of God is that he's good. And more than that, David was confident that his mercy was going to chase him down. And I love this one because this word mercy is the word hesed. The one you hear Pastor Mike talk about a lot, he even referenced it this Sunday. The hesed love of God, the steadfast, loyal, steady covenant love of God. That is what David said was chasing him down to overtake him, was hotly pursuing him. David knew that God's mercy, his steadfast love and his goodness were going to chase him down and be present in his life every single day he lived on this earth, stretching on into eternity. And David knew that God's love was never, ever going to change, even if his circumstances did. And if there's ever a person in Scripture whose circumstances changed drastically, it was David. You guys remember the story. He was like 14, 15-year-old kid taking care of sheep as a farmer with his dad and then became king and then was a refugee running for his life. He knew high highs and low lows. But David knew that no matter what he faced, the constant steady thing in his life was that his shepherd was chasing him down with his steady, loyal love. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the good shepherd who does that for us, who chases us down with steady, loyal love? I think we need to let that word that David picked so specifically be our guide. We need to follow the shepherd like that, chase him down, pursue him with everything we've got, with a steady, loyal love. If you're being honest with yourself, does that describe the way that you follow your shepherd? For those of us who claim Christ, who claim that he is our good shepherd and that we love him, does that look like you? Do you chase after him? Do you pursue him with everything you've got? And what would you say your goal is in terms of following the good shepherd? Is it because you want to be right there with him? You want him? Or are you in it for the grass? Jesus helps us understand exactly what it means to follow the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Jesus just says outright, I'm the good shepherd. I love that. And he says over and over again that he's the good shepherd and his sheep, he says very clearly, know his voice. His sheep will know his voice. It's fascinating to me that as dumb as sheep are, when they are all together on the tablelands, often multiple shepherds would have multiple flocks together and they'd share the land. When it was time to move on and the shepherd gets up and calls his sheep, his sheep, not all the sheep, just his sheep, get up and follow his voice. It's amazing that they know their shepherd's voice and they hear him and they're quick to get up and respond and follow him. And it just begs the question, do you know your shepherd's voice? Can you tell what Jesus is saying directly to you, what he wants you to do, and are you quick to obey him because you know his voice? Is it clear above all the other commands and voices that you hear in any given day? If you want to know what the shepherd says, if you want to follow his voice, you've got to know what he's saying. And there's never been a time in history that's as easy to know what he's saying as there is now because his words are printed and bound and sitting in your lap. We have to be committed to knowing what our shepherd says so that we can follow him. 
and not just knowing what he says, but doing it. In verse 3, we read that he leads us in the right paths. Ladies, we cannot expect our good shepherd to lead us down the right path if we refuse to read his instructions and do what he says. We have to listen to our voice, his voice and obey the shepherd. Psalm 37 verses 3 and 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do what is good. There's that follow him in the right paths again. Feed on his faithfulness and find safe pasture. And I love this next part. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you love him, you will obey him and not just expect him to give you what you think you need. This doesn't mean that he's going to give you every desire your heart has ever had. It means that he's going to inform your heart of the desires that he wants you to have. The more you read his word, the more you align yourself with him, the more your desires become what he wants them to be. That's how he leads you. That's why it's so important for you to know his word. And ultimately, in response to that steady, loyal love that overtakes us and chases us down, we need to respond in same. We need to love our shepherd like that with a loyal love that has no rival loves. If we want to follow our shepherd, we've got to make sure we love him first and most. And we've got to pursue intimacy with our shepherd. And how do you do that with any relationship? Communication is key, right? We need to be women who pray, who talk to our shepherd, who listen to him, who do what he says, and who talk to him in prayer. And practically speaking, if you are a sheep following the shepherd, stay with the flock. We all know that sheep are notorious for getting off the path, and you've heard stories of like the one sheep who jumps off a cliff, and then all the sheep start jumping off the cliff because they're following that one. It's just a true thing that you need to make sure that you're following sheep who are following the shepherd. Don't think you can go it alone and make sure that you are actually staying close to the shepherd, that you're surrounding yourself with people who want to be close to the shepherd, not just to stay on the fringe of the flock, but to be as close to him as you can get. It's easy to make excuses uh, for all the things that take our time and our energy when we know we should be pursuing the shepherd a little bit harder. And our schedules are filled, often with really good things, but we have to remember that saying, you know, good, better, best. Our shepherd can cut right through the heart, see our motives, and he knows when we have the opportunity to make a better choice, to do something that would improve our relationship with him, and when we're just choosing something lesser. If you were to write down everything you did this week, just in time slots, what would your week look like? How much time do you devote to listening to the shepherd's voice, to knowing his word? How much time is spent talking to your shepherd in prayer? How much time is spent with the other sheep? I think we need to have an honest evaluation of how well we're doing in terms of following the shepherd. I'm not saying we should all go home and, you know, cancel our Netflix accounts and swear off all fun forever. That's not it. I'm saying that I think we can all do an assessment to see if we really actually are following the shepherd because we want him. We want more time with him. We want to know him more. Or if we're just checking a box or we're trying to get the other sheep's attention. It's hard sometimes to keep our eyes fixed on the shepherd because we're surrounded by what we can see right here, right now, our temporal home, right? And we struggle with sin both in our own hearts and around us. Maybe it's enemies, maybe it's circumstances, whatever it is, it can be hard to remember that our shepherd is leading us. We are on a path and we're moving 
He's got a destination in mind, and that's the point. There's going to be a day when we get to be with the shepherd with no distractions, no sin, perfect intimacy with him. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. So, like sheep, we should eagerly anticipate the eternity that we get to spend with our shepherd. Let's write it that way for our last point. Eagerly anticipate eternity with the shepherd. My cousin got married a few years ago, and uh, she got married in my family's hometown, uh, Camarillo, ever heard of that? Uh, Where it doesn't really ever rain, definitely not in June. But man, oh man, it rained on her wedding day in June. And I remember like she had these like uh, wooden plates that were beautiful sitting outside, and they, they shriveled into balls. It was wild. I mean, her wedding was ruined. It was ruined. And at one point, we were all hanging out in the garage, maybe hoping the rain would go away. It didn't. It did not. Uh, and so eventually, I went out and tried to go see if I could find her. And I'll never forget the picture. I can like, see it so clearly in my mind. She's on the dance floor with her husband in the middle of the pouring rain, dancing. And I, you know, I kind of made my way over to her, kind of like a little trepidation, like, do you know your wedding is ruined? And she looks over at me, just smiling, and I could see the mascara running down her neck. I mean, just drenched. And first words out of her mouth is, she's like, Kelly, I'm married. And I wanted to be like, you know your, your wedding is ruined, right? Like, you know, but it, what a shame to me that I expected her to be upset when she had the right perspective all along. She genuinely was not consumed with the one day of her wedding. She was all about forever with her man. She was never going to have to say goodbye. She was going to be his wife. She was going to live in his house. That's all she talked about. And truly, even if everything went wrong, which it totally did, nothing shook the whole point of that day. She was his. And I think about that a lot sometimes because I'm pretty sure that is what Christ would love for his bride to act like. And sometimes we get so caught up in the temporal things that in the whole scheme of things, this is really like just a day. And we forget that the whole goal is that we're going to live in his house. We're never going to have to say goodbye. We get him forever. And that's the whole point. That should be how we feel as sheep on the journey going home. Look at verse 6 again. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and here's the goal, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that word dwell is so strong, it's continual, it's to abide, it's to remain, it's to keep going. And that's exactly what our walk with Christ should be like. It should be a desire to dwell with him, abide with him, and be with him. And ultimately, one day when we're home with him, we can do that perfectly. There's going to be a day when we are finally home. No more sin, no more distractions, just him. And that's the goal, isn't it? I love how Hebrews 9.28 says that we should be eagerly waiting for him. That's the mindset. It's so easy to focus on the temporal things because that's what we know. But we've got to make sure that we've got the right perspective. David's almost painting a picture for us. Here's the journey. Maybe you're laying in the green grass. Maybe you're climbing up a hill. Maybe you're walking through a valley. It doesn't really matter because ultimately the end of all of it, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, is that you're going to end up in his house. That's where you're safe. That's where you're going to thrive because that's where you get him. It's so easy sometimes to read passages like this and think about all the benefits that we get and miss him. We've got to make sure that 
he is the object of our hope and our joy and our love, that he is what we want, nothing less. Ultimately, the goal is to dwell in the Lord's house forever. Isn't that sweet? That's where we get him, and we never say goodbye. I have to admit, as I was studying this psalm, uh, a question just kept coming to my mind. What's in it for the shepherd? Have you ever wondered that? Every sermon I've ever heard about Psalm 23 or every reference to sheep is, they're so dumb, that's why we're compared to them, right? Like you've heard that? Sheep are dumb. I mean, of all the livestock, they are hands down the most obstinate, the most difficult to lead, the hardest to keep alive, the most prone to self-damage, whatever it is. So what's in it for the shepherd at the end of the day to be like, ah, look, I have a hundred of the dumbest animals in the world. Like, have you ever wondered that? Well, it's interesting because as I was studying, uh, I realized David actually answered this question for me, and I'm so glad he did. The impressive part of this psalm The whole crux of all of it is really not about the sheep. It's about the shepherd. Look at verse 3. Why does he do it? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. A sheep farmer is known by the health of his flock. If you see a whole flock of gaunt, skinny sheep with flies buzzing everywhere, you know something about the shepherd. Either he's lazy Uh, He's not very smart, he's not a good manager, he's not very strong, he can't really fight the bad guys off. Whatever it is, a bad shepherd is a weak flock. On the flip side, you see a bunch of healthy, strong sheep. These sheep that are hard to keep alive, hard to lead, obstinate animals, if they're strong and healthy, you know their shepherd is impressive, right? It's by the sweat of his brow, the strength of his body, the wisdom of his mind. His oversight is the reason why those sheep look so good. His own namesake is at stake when he looks at his sheep. And even more than that, I love how David would have known this because we see a biblical example of what a good shepherd looked like in David himself. In 1 Samuel 17, we meet David. He's a kid, a teenage kid taking care of his dad's sheep. And his dad wanted him to go check on his brothers who were camped out at war against the Philistines. And so he goes. And when he gets there, he sees his brothers. And then he sees the Philistine warrior Goliath on the other side yelling things out to the army and blaspheming God. And as a teenage kid, David was mad that he had the audacity to yell like this about his God. So David says, I'll fight him. To which, of course, King Saul pulls him into the tent and tries to talk him down, saying, this guy has been a warrior since he was a youth, and you are still a youth. You've got no chance. And I love the way that David responded to him, not just because it showed his confidence in his awesome shepherd, but because it showed what kind of shepherd he was as well. Listen closely to how David responded and think about the kind of shepherd this teenage David was. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 to 37. And David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine 
will be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And I love how Saul responded, because what else could he say? Go, and the Lord be with you. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that David was actually known as a man of war before he was even old enough to be in the army fighting war. Why? Because of his reputation as a shepherd. This kid killed bears and lions, grabbed them by the beard. This kid was tough. His reputation was because he was an incredible shepherd. The reason why our Lord, our shepherd, takes such good care of us is for his own reputation's sake. When his sheep can walk through a deep, dark, scary valley, the valley of the shadow of death, and make it out the other side unafraid and unharmed, you know what that says about the shepherd? He is mighty. When his sheep can lay down and drink and eat the grass and sleep with no fear and be perfectly content and at rest, it's because they have full confidence that their shepherd can throw that rod and fight off the bad guys and they have nothing to worry about. And when the sheep all get home, healthy and fat and strong, it's the shepherd and his wisdom that knew exactly the right path for them to take to get them all the way home. That's why he does it. The reason why the Lord leads us in right paths is so that he gets the credit that he rightfully deserves from start to finish. He leads you all the way. Isn't it amazing that our good shepherd leads us, that he loves us, that he chooses us and calls us his own? And even like he says in John 10, he loves his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. He does because he loves his sheep. That's amazing, isn't it? In fact, it's that deep love for us, his sheep, that actually builds his reputation for everyone to see. David, who was a pretty impressive shepherd himself, David the king is the one who sat down and wrote these words, and he boasted, I belong to the Lord. He's my shepherd. No one is stronger. No one else can satisfy. Nothing's going to take me out of his hand. And honestly, I would rather live in the doorway of the house of my God than be anywhere else. Like he said in Psalm 84.10, our shepherd is better than David. He's the good shepherd. He's the true king. And he is going to lead us all the way home and we can count on it. His reputation is at stake. That's why we can trust him. Ladies, we have a very good shepherd. Let's follow him with all of our hearts. Pray with me. Lord God, there is no one like you who loves sheep, <laughs> often hard to lead, often unwilling to listen, often running off the path, Lord. Thank you for your patience and your kindness and your goodness and the joy that is yours to chase us down and keep us close to you. I pray that this week we'd think about you differently, that we would remember how awesome you are, how strong you are, how wise you are, and that regardless of the circumstance or the path that we're on, that we would keep the destination in sight. Lord, I pray that you would help us want you, that you would be the sole object of our love, of our devotion, our allegiance, our solidarity, God, and that everything else we gain 
or lose for that matter, pales in comparison to knowing we have you. Thank you for sending your son to live and labor and die so that we could be right with you, God. We love you, we worship you, and we want to follow you because of what you've done through us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.